0: back. We'll be right back. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Sedeckes. I'm a former theology student, current philosophy student, and I keep playing with the intro. So you're going to hear a lot of different intros until I find one that I'm comfortable with. But this is a podcast where I explore really fascinating ideas with experts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff. So come think with me. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Dr. Brian Ballard. We're going to be talking about narrativism and thinking of yourself uh, as living in a story. And uh, we're going to talk more about that, so don't worry too much. I'm really excited for it. And as you guys, the listeners, know, I am obsessed with the authorial analogy for the God-world relation, and a lot of this fits in nicely. Um, So I'm really, really excited to talk with Brian. Before we jump in, just want to thank everyone on Patreon for making this podcast happen. If this is your favorite podcast, if it's top five, top ten, please consider becoming a Patreon patron. You can support me through the link in the description. Uh, Anything would help. Uh, There's a lot of different ways to give. And uh, there's lots of different goodies over there. I hate saying goodies, but I always do it. Uh, You can get stickers and mugs and all sorts of fun stuff over there. So check the link in the description for my Patreon uh, patron team. And then uh, if you want to give a one-time gift, there's also a link in there too as well. But uh, if you like this podcast, please please consider doing that. You want to see me stick around here. I would love to be doing this full-time. So uh, please support your boy. But enough commodifying myself. Commodification. Enough of that. I'm going to jump in with Brian now. I'm super excited to, to think of ourselves as uh, living in a story and... Uh, figuring out what narrativism is and why a Christian should be committed to narrativism. So let's do it. Brian, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So uh, we we just met uh, recently at the Society of Christian Philosophers conference and my wife, Julie, came with me, the poor woman, but uh, <laughs> she had an amazing time listening to your talk, man. Yours was her favorite. So ah, thanks, thanks, so thanks for being there. Thanks for well. Thanks for doing it. Um she kept on saying you can tell that you're a professor because the way you're teaching from your uh your your paper. Mm-hmm. So, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, man? Like like where are you a professor at?
1: Yeah, I'm a professor of philosophy at Concordia in Irvine. And um, before that I was actually a high school teacher and I had I love working with high school students and before that I did my PhD at at the University of Pittsburgh and I was at NYU before that. So, it's a little yeah. bit of my journey. I love young people, but I also love philosophy and Everything in between. I love that. Well, when you're at Pitt, what did you do your dissertation on? I worked on emotions, so I was really interested in the idea that emotions bring some kind of epistemic improvement to our lives. And hmm. epistemic is just a philosopher's word for having to do with truth, knowledge, justification, the goods of the cognitive life. Yeah. And so I think you know something about something about feeling the beauty of the sunset. Yeah. That enriches your your contact with its beauty, so that just intellectually judging the sunset as beautiful is not epistemically on par. So mm. I was trying to explore why emotions seem to make that difference.
0: Yeah. Wow, man, that's awesome. Does that have uh, has that influenced like your your view of God, like whether God has emotions, whether He's passable or or not necessarily?
1: I think that it has made soften me up to the idea that God has emotions in the literal sense. Okay. And um, so I'm pretty into that idea. It has more so enriched my sense of the value of emotions in the Christian life. Yeah. And so there's an analogous puzzle in the Christian life. It's not enough, the Christian thinks, to merely know that God is provident. It's, yeah. You need to also feel feel that deep sense of security that would come mm. from that. It needs to root down in the sort of dark soils of your heart, as it were. Yeah. So why is it that the case? Why isn't just knowing these propositions enough. Why must you feel them also?
0: Hmm. That's, that's awesome. Uh, so that there, there's like an old debate. Um, what, what is it called? Like intellectualism or, or cognitivism? something like that, at least in, in reform circles where they're talking about like, whether a is enough or whether you, you need the, the uh, emotions that go along with it. Oh And yeah. it's, it's awesome. I, I, I'm with you. I think that the emotions yeah. are, are super helpful. God gave them to us for a reason and they ought mm-hmm. to be, they ought to map onto reality, and when they don't, like C.S. Lewis said, uh, he doesn't enjoy the company of children, and he's like, "That's there's something wrong with me
1: mm-hmm, because of that." Yeah,
0: and he recognized right. that. I'm like, "That's good, yeah. man. I like that."
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of my, you mentioned Lewis. A lot of my inspiration for this whole project comes from reading The Abolition of Man when I was a you know early college student. So that's
0: awesome. Well, when you were saying that, I I thought of uh, um, Coleridge at the waterfall. Coleridge. Oh yeah uh mm-hmm. uh yeah maybe, with,
1: w- maybe wordsworth one of those guys
0: yeah yeah whether it's uh whether it's sublime or not
1: yeah and that's someone's right. like oh it's nice or it's beautiful yeah. and it's like no it's sublime dude come on yeah do you have sublime feelings no yeah no, my feelings are feelings of veneration aimed responding to the sublime
0: yeah so good i love that well um so you have this you, you were just telling me earlier about uh you have this this broader picture of um Christianity and uh, philosophy and flourishing of, of, of human life and uh, so we're going to kind of dive down on one of those sections uh, right now but hopefully you know we can uh, get into a uh, bunch of different rabbit trails uh, in, in your project as a whole but today when we talk about narrativism and this paper that you wrote uh, for faith and philosophy called Christianity and the life story um, so I wanted to see like let's let's jump in on what is narrativism um, just yeah what what is that thing
1: yes perfect so narrativism is a a broad cluster of views it's not like people got together and said hey guys let's call this narrativism there's (laughs) there's a lot of different ways in which people have thought that it's important for us to understand our lives as stories Hmm. that some sort of existential good some good of human flourishing hangs on you having a sense of the story of your life and how that story is going so like folks like daniel dennett think this is how we craft an identity Connie Mm -hmm. Rosati is another one in this camp. Other people think this is part of the meaningfulness of life. So let me try to, like, sweeten up this view for you. Yeah. Imagine two lives with the same total amount of good. Whatever Mm -hmm. goods there are, friendships, bonfires, you know, rock and roll concerts, whatever. They have the same total amount of good. But one starts with a little bit and gradually increases. And -hmm. the other is like the mirror image of this life starts with a lot and gradually decreases mm. okay now the question is which life would you prefer if you were sort of choosing it off of a menu
0: yeah obviously I want more uh, later like I don't want to be happiest early
1: yeah I mean I ask classes of students there's always one kid who's like no I want you know there's always one kid making <laughs> <can> trouble <laughs> yeah almost everybody wants a life where your best days are ahead of you even if it means there's a to- total same total quantity of goods we care also about their distribution Now, why is that the case that we want a life where our best days are ahead of us well here's an explanation of that what you're looking for is a certain kind of narrative structure what you're looking at there is actually a plot hill Hmm. rising action building towards a climax and you want to live that story a story of growth and development and progression you don't want to live a story of of decline and disillusion right so uh, i think that uh, that leads us pretty naturally to the thought that to, to live the best life, the fullest life, you need to be able to understand your story yeah. and also live out a story of growth and development. So mm. a certain kind of narrative structure is a, you might say, a condition on the meaningful life or on the perhaps the most meaningful life. Yeah. So that would be a way of think, thinking about why you're coming to see that certain goods, profound human goods, depend on narrating, narrating your own life. Mm-hmm. So that's just okay. one version of a narrativist view.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and and is that uh, that's the the self identity? Is that most uh, does that mostly fit? Most uh, it's characterized by Dennett's view, or
1: yeah. So there's these a different narrativist view is that you come to develop a sense of who you are by by developing a sense of how your story is going. Okay. So that ultimately, the crafting of a self is the crafting of a certain narrative about. Your life, yeah. Now I'm actually not crazy about that. I think a restricted version of that view kind of works, but that's certainly another good. A sense of identity is another good that some people have thought hangs on our self narrations. Okay.
0: Um, so, you in in your paper you bring up uh, you you have Dennett, who we've just kind of talked about. You have uh, Richard, not Richard Taylor, uh, Charles Taylor, right? In uh, his Sources of the Self, which is like an amazing book that always gets overshadowed by a secular right. age. All his yes. other, like, uh, uh the language animals, another really, really good, one. I think it's mm-hmm. better than secular age, hmm. but now it's gotta be secular age. Cause he wrote that. And now we got to talk about, you know, all of his stuff, but, uh, in sources of the self, he, I think he brings up, uh, the intelligibility of one's life. Right? Yes. Um, do you, do you like that better? Uh, or is it complementary to uh, do all these fit together or are they like, ex- um, mutually exclusive?
1: I mean, I would think you could hold all of these views. You could think that a rich array of human goods hang on our uh, understanding our lives as not just narratives, but the right kind of narrative. So for Taylor, he thinks something like you understand your story, your life, yourself in terms of this broader story unfolding, a historical story, and perhaps in the case of a religion, a cosmic story. Yeah, And that if we don't have some broader narrative context, we're sort of disoriented as a kind of lawlessness or chaos, and we don't know how to uh, relate our lives to any bigger hole to guide us, to anchor us. I mean, it's sort of like one way of expressing your depression if you're depressed is to say each day goes by and it's just, you know, as Carlyle said, one damn thing after another. Yeah. And there's nothing that unites my days into some broader overarching theme. Mm-hmm. And that's just one way of expressing your despair is to describe it like that. So. Yeah. Taylor is almost suggesting one step further, take that whole narrative of your life, located inside of a bigger narrative context. What's the bigger story that sort of embeds your narrative? Yeah. That seems to me something deeply right about that. Do you um do you like the word meta narrative for that
0: or, or is that I think like, that's
1: fine. That's okay. uh, you know, I don't like these postmoderns too much, but I don't mind stealing <laughs> their language, you know, master okay. narrative, yeah. Cosmic narrative, whatever. I'm just not skeptical of them the way that these French philosophers are there's, there's nothing wrong with having a master narrative obviously I'm a pious christian so yeah I or totally. I organize my life around a master narrative
0: right yeah i i thought that way too i was like well that that's a good word for it. meta meta or master i like meta cause, yeah but um yeah just grab that and be like yeah you guys don't like mm-hmm. that i do here's an argument for why uh, we should think that way you you also bring in uh, Velman, and I, i'm i'm not as familiar with with Velleman's work but but uh I think Velleman characterizes or or uses narrativism for like a sense of authenticity.
1: Does that, does that sound right? Yeah. You might be able to say that. Uh, He has a new book that I quote from where he says, you know, I want to be the one writing the story of my life as I live it by living it. Yeah. And that sounds to me like a, a plea for authenticity, a desire to be the authentic source, the author of your life, of your life story. But earlier work, Veliman, well, that's one place where you get that. I gave you that example of the mirror image lives. That comes from some earlier work from Velumin. Actually, it comes from some work from Robert Nozick, but he doesn't really okay. uh, get cited for some reason. It's kind of in an obscure chapter of a of an obscure book called The Examined Life. But it's a really good book.
0: Okay. Well, we're all obsessed with the uh, Experience Machine, so yes, he's kind of pigeonholed in that. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that okay. So this. For my listeners uh, who are familiar with Joe Rogan's podcast, which, you know, don't cancel me just because you're canceling him as well. Uh, Rogan talks about this all the time. He's like, be the hero in your own story. Uh, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, think about like who you want to be and then go do that thing. Um, go go be that thing. And and sometimes I listen to that before I go work out because I'm like, yeah, dude, I'm like I'm going to do that. I'm going to like write my own narrative. Um, and I, I really like that. Um, but then when we think about going back to the meta narrative, um, you you talk about self-narrating in in this uh paper. And I'm just I'm anticipating some Christians being like, How dare you be the you know, you're you're not in control of your own story. So how how do we make sense of uh self-narration from a, a Christian perspective?
1: Yeah, that's a good point. So I mean, how do you square what I'm saying with the thought that, well, God is the ultimate author mm-hmm. of this story? Well, I mean, if you're a uh it's kind of kind of going to depend on your view of providence, I think. Yeah. Big picture view of providence. So I suppose you're like a Calvinist guy. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, God is the author, but like the Westminster Catechism says that this does not do violence to creaturely freedom and the innate causal of properties of things. So you're still contributing to your story in some sense, the Calvinist wants to say. Yeah. Even though God is sort of the great, great co-author, as, as it were, uh, perhaps your editor as well. <laughs> that's good. And, um... On an open theist view, it's, it's sort of more like an, a game of improv, an improv story. It's like God gets the story going and he knows how he's going to end it and some things he's going to inject in the middle. Yeah. But you're grabbing some of those narrative threads and he's, he's, uh, and, you, and you're taking them a certain way and then he's taking what you did and taking it another way. It's like a big game of improv in the end of yeah. this story. I like the beginning of Tolkien's Silmarillion as a kind of analogy for this. Mm. And if you're not familiar with that, it's like a God figure sings this beautiful music and one of his angels takes it and introduces this clamor, this, you know, he's trying to get attention. He blares on the horns and smashes the cymbals, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But everything that Melkor, that's the evil angel, everything that Melkor does, Iluvatar takes, takes it and weaves it back into his symphony mm-hmm. and makes his symphony even more beautiful. So you might think of that as a kind of glorified game of improv. Yeah. And I think that's a great way to look at how the cooperation between God and man in the crafting of the life story proceeds. Uh, that's awesome.
0: That that was so good, man. That's a, a really, really cool way to, to flesh out different models of God. I wonder if Molinism would be like a choose your own adventure or something like that. Uh, there's a, there's, I, I like that. There's yeah. options. Yeah. But, but you get to, to choose kind of maybe, um, that's cool. Okay. So you did a great job. Um, Pulling from the Westminster there, because it's like, well, what are you going to say? You going to argue against Westminster? It's that's yeah. on you then. Yeah, bring um, the Calvinist. <laughs> I love that. Um, well, okay. So you also um, you bring up a couple arguments against narrativism from like Alan Strawson, and uh, some some people we we address some Christian uh, objections really quickly, but um, other people are like, yeah, this sounds great. Why would anyone object to narrativism at all? And then here comes gallen Strawson. So what? Yeah. Why?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the, let's back up just one step. So I, I'm basically arguing that if Christianity is true, narrativism would follow irresistibly, mm. right? You are committed. If you're a Christian, you are committed to endorsing narrativism. Yeah. And that's a pretty interesting commitment because that means it's a place that Christianity sticks its neck out. So if narrativism mm. is false, well, you got to follow that backwards across the entailment you know, yeah. to the demise of Christianity. <laughs> and so you are... This is a place where um, that ne- it's territory that needs to be defended. And I don't think Christian philosophers have noticed that entailment, noticed mm. that commitment. And and people do attack narrativism. And so we have, as Christian philosophers, a stake in that debate. Galen Strawson is the leader sort of of the uh, attack against narrativism. And he raises a number of pretty vigorous objections, spirit, quite spirited objections, actually. Yeah, And w- one of the main ones, for example, is that autobiographical memory is too unreliable for self-narrating to do much good. I mean, mm. and this seems to be the empirical finding that our memories can fabulate, We forget every time we generate a memory, we're sort of reconstructing it yeah. and getting farther and farther away from the original incident. So if I want your memory to be reliable, I have to not ask you to report on your memory. Something oh like yeah. That. So you
0: shape it as you're thinking exactly, about it. So, exactly. Yeah. You yeah.
1: reshape it. So how how much good could this unreliable process actually contribute mm. to human life? And it seems like whatever self narrating is, it's going to depend on autobiographical memory. Mm-hmm. So that would seem to be a significant challenge to the narrativist position. Just to name one challenge.
0: Yeah. Uh man, dude, like how how do we get around that? What do you what do you do with that?
1: I know. I guess I guess we should uh, call it. Huh? <laughs>
0: Can wrap it up.
1: Well, here I actually think that the Christian has distinct advantages. Hmm. So not only does Christianity commit you to narrativism, but in addition, it gives you resources for defending narrativism. And I think in this case, for example, the Christian can say something like this. uh, Yes, my life is a story. I understand it as a story of redemption. And I acknowledge that my grasp of the details is slippery. Because I'm a fallible creature and and, and it's beyond me. Matthew Arnold, a great Victorian poet, talks about the unrecognized river of our lives. Mm. That's a wonderful picture. There's this river flowing within you and you're being pulled along on it and you don't even know what it is. Yeah. Okay. Tennyson says, so runs my dream, but what am I, an infant crying in the night, Mm. an infant crying for the light and with no language but a cry. And the Christian can take all that on board, that there's some sense in which here we are, these fragile creatures, you know, grasping at these truths. And maybe we don't know our stories, but God knows our stories. He has them. He's the great author, and he's holding the narrative threads. And we can trust that he's at work weaving them into a story of redemption. That is to say, a story of growth and progression for our good, so that our best days are ahead of us. Yeah. And he's doing that even if we don't exactly know yet what the story is. So the yeah. Christian can endorse a narrative position uh, without being responsible for all of the narrative details. That seems to me a huge advantage. And the mm. secularists cannot embrace anything like that sort of advantage.
0: Yeah, Oh dude, that's that's really, really, really interesting. So um, as you know, like I wrote my master's thesis on uh, the authorial analogy. And it was a way of cashing out a meticulous providence view. Mm-hmm. Um, whereby God can narrate the story and not be morally culpable for the evil that exists in the story, and and so you're saying that uh, this doesn't have to be meticulous providence. It, it can be. There is room for. Uh, I wonder. I wonder how that might work because I, I I'm really interested in that. Like how 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 can there be um, room for like pap or something uh, within that story? Mm-hmm. Sorry, what's pap? Oh, a principle of alternate possibilities. Um, okay. Yeah, libertarian free will.
1: Well, I would just go back to the uh, improv analogy there and yeah, say, yeah. we're contributing something and then God will take what we contribute, take the frayed ends, as it were, and weave them back into his great tapestry, okay. always working towards a narrative of redemption. Okay. No matter what we do, there's no way that we can escape that narrative. Mm. I mean, as long as we're cooperating with grace and so on. So That's good. Okay.
0: Man, I like that. Yeah, that that is really cool. I I love thinking about God like it, like the author of, of reality. I think it's I think it's really fruitful and I think it um some something that you talked about in the paper was that um it's not I, I don't want to misquote you so so uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but this isn't just like an intuition pump or like a conceptual tool, but like this is actually how life is. Like life is actually a narrative a real narrative story. Does that
1: does that sound right? Oh boy. Okay. So that's a deep issue, Parker. So mm. let me say, first of all, that I made Parker send me his master's thesis and it's a solid piece of work, you guys. It's almost basically a doctoral dissertation. It's twice as wow, long man. as my, my thesis was. So Appreciate maybe that. he'll post it somewhere for people to, to flirt with it. Mm-hmm. But you're bringing up a deep issue there, Parker, because I've so far just been talking about the importance of understanding your life as a story. Okay. Yeah. You might have this other idea that it's not so important just to understand your life as a story. But for your life to actually be a certain kind of story, Mm. whether you understand it as such or not. Yeah. Well, that seems right to me, actually. That seems right to me. Hmm. And Alistair McIntyre holds this view. I I call this narrative realism. Okay. Because the thought there is that there actually is a correct story of your life. Okay, so Bernard Williams, for example, denies narrative realism. He's a narrative anti-realist. He thinks... Any given life admits of numerous equally correct narrations, Hmm. even though they're deeply in conflict and you'll offer up very different stories. And if that's the case, then it can't be that there's a correct narrative of your life, a narrative structure there in the life to be grasped. And those are two really different views about reality. And I actually think it's weird because a lot of narrativists who think you need to understand your life as a story, how's your story going? They're also narrative anti-realists, Parker. Hmm. Doesn't that seem like a funny combination? Yeah. Now, here's what's funny about that. You're saying two things. You're saying, uh, on the one hand, we should understand our lives as stories. But on the other hand, our lives could be any number of stories, some of them profoundly different. But you need to choose one of them and embrace it as your life story. And on that embracing will hang some tremendous existential good. So Joan Didion, you know, great essayist, she wrote in the White Album, she said um, that we tell ourselves stories in order to live, something we have to do to make sense of the world. Yeah. But then she says that by using narratives, that narratives are the imposition we, we put on the shifting phantasmagoria of our experience. Mm. And that, I say, wait a minute, that makes it sound like narratives are this thing alien to reality that don't actually capture its structure, and we're just imposing, her word, imposing.
0: Yeah, it's like a cookie cutter just shaping the Play-Doh of of reality.
1: So how could anything very important about our lives hang on on that? I mean, that seems like a pretty arbitrary process, and it's hard to see how that could contribute to the meaning of your life. It sounds like you're just sort of making stuff up. So I actually think if you're a narrativist, if you think it's important to understand your life story— you need to be a narrative realist and think there really is a story there to be grasped. And in narrating your life, you're seeking the story, not constructing it. Okay. Um,
0: I'm sure, like, uh, is, do we all, if, if you're a, uh, there's so much good stuff here. If you're a narrative realist, is there the same structure for every story? Or maybe does, does your story have a different structure than mine?
1: Well... I don't think narrative realism would give you that That every life automatically has the same structure. It might be very okay. different. Your life okay. might be a story of growth and integration. Mine might be a story of dissipation and, you know, alas. Uh, and I might be just really wrong about that, right? Yeah. So the point, it's, let's be clear. Um, the point is not just whether a narrative gets the facts right. It's whether it strings them together in the right way. Yeah. Uh, and that's what narrative brings, you know, it's like, it's not just a Bernard Williams said a narrative doesn't just pull from this like great barn of facts, this pile Mm. of facts, and you just put them together. There's a way that narratives organize, arrange, and thematize the facts, configure them. And that's the key thing that a narrative contributes. Um, William Gass, great literary critic, says, you know, the the facts don't just sit there like so many birds on a telephone wire. The narrative has to put them together. So. The question here is not whether your life story gets the facts right, but whether it gets the thematic configuration of the facts right. Yes, yeah. And whether that process of thematizing the facts can be guided by reality. Of course, articulating the facts can be guided by reality, but the question is whether narratively thematizing them can be guided by what the world is like. Yeah, And I think if you're a narrativist, you have to say, yes, of course it can be. There is a thematic structure in my life there to be discovered
0: yeah i i love this idea and i think um a lot of people familiar with jordan peterson will, will like this as well because he he often talks like this but i do think that peterson being a a, a naturalist mm. goes with the anti, anti-realist route and and accidentally yes. becomes kind of a, a type of you know existentialist that we're just we're, we're making the meaning out of this chaos yeah.
1: yes and that's that's interesting, might not be an accident, Parker, because I think that actually, and I, I haven't like defended this yet, it's just kind of what I think, mm-hmm. if you're a narrative realist, you can't be a naturalist. I think yeah. that there's, a, there's an argument for God's existence here, going from narrative realism to, to theism. And because, um, I, mean, I be, can unpack that a bit, but...
0: Well, just, just to take a stab, it's, it, if there's, a, if there's mm-hmm. a text, there's an author type thing, like if there's a, a meaning and purpose... There's someone who purposed it, or?
1: Um, maybe your first analogy is a bit closer. Yeah, I mean, or if there's a narrative, there's a narrator. Okay. And that's perhaps what the anti-realist was thinking. It's like, look, if there really is a narrative, there has to be a narrative point of view from yeah. which the facts are narrated. Mm-hmm. And I want to say, all right, if, suppose you're right. The problem is if there's not an authoritative narrative point of view, then you can't take the business of self-narrating seriously enough. It's too arbitrary. Yeah. But if there is an authoritative narrative, narrative point of view a great author then we're trying to discover the story that he is telling with our lives yeah and there is something there to be discovered we can capture the sense in which you are trying to understand your narrative not just construct it yeah right so that's why so there's there's a sort of argument here narrativism we need to understand our lives as stories i'm saying this entails narrative realism there really mm. is a story to be grasped and I'm saying narrative realism entails theism. There has to be an authoritative point of view, an ultimate point of view, and a great narrator whose story we are trying to understand.
0: Yeah. So all of this, it's it's like my brain is going a thousand miles minutes right now. It's just it's crazy because there's so many connections to like, well, philosophy of time, uh, you could go in yes. for like a moving a moving spotlight view because well, that's so arbitrary. Well, not if there's a narrator who is telling the story objectively mm-hmm. and, and seeing it. So Moving spotlight can make sense of B-theory and A-theory type stuff going together while we have intuitions. Uh, it could make sense of, you know, free will literature with uh, historicism. Why mm. Why does my past matter in order for me to not be manipulated and, and, yeah. and such? Just, it's so exciting, man. It's so cool when you get a big picture type view like this. Yeah. And you can say, well, you know, you go with Nagel's view from nowhere and say, yeah, look, like there's a problem here. Yeah, but the view from nowhere is a view from God's, God's somewhere. Right. And, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a limiting concept, like, on our humility or our, uh, like, I'm not the author, so I can't fully know the story. And then you bring it all the way back to the personal to say, hey, look, maybe I don't know everything. And, yeah, there's some evil happening in my life, but I don't think I can use that against the existence of the author because I'd have to be in his place in order to know that he can't bring this to a good fruition. Mm-hmm. Just so, it's so huge.
1: Yeah, the story analogy sort of unlocks a lot of pieces there, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah, it gets me all fired up. Sorry that we we went, like, super high level. Like, we, we pulled back from your paper and just went there, man. That was awesome. You know,
1: I like the 30,000-foot view. I think it's yeah. philosophers don't do enough of the big picture stuff because they're yeah. really, they're trained to fight about the details, fight that's about true. the inches. And, and it's important to see, you know, there's a lot that I have to defend there. And that that's an argument for the existence of God that, right. that hasn't been done yet yeah you know, so every step has to be defended it's a book-length project but it's still yeah. good to just see oh that's how that would go right yeah so
0: i have a, a paper i've been meaning to read i meant to read from my master's thesis and i sing get around to it Um yeah wasn't able to but it's it's uses um narrative it's like narrative and transcendental arguments hmm. narratives as transcendent I'm, I'm, i'll send it your way it might be mm-hmm. might be no good but um i thought that was interesting And he, he's yeah. saying that narratives can be a, a type of argument and this this transcendental argument um of showing like an uh, what are the preconditions of such and such story or something. So that could be really cool. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to go back to uh, just to touch again on narrative realism and just ask, is it, is it possible that you're like the antagonist in your own story or I- are we all, are we all protagonists?
1: You know, that's interesting. So, We're all protagonists of our own story, but you might be the antagonist of someone else's story. Yeah. And it's a general truth that a lot of the material of a narrative can play a different role in a different narrative. That's Mm. true of events, for example. So your birthday party can play a certain role in my narrative and a pretty different role in your narrative. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's just a truism about narration, that any given event or fact can operate differently in different narratives.
0: Yeah. Okay, I, I I really like this. Um, I wrote a, I wrote. I used to be more into blogs and stuff, and I wrote a piece for my postmodern friends and just talking about the the interrelation between a, a meta narrative and a micro narrative. And I think there's something here that Christianity uniquely offers uh, against the the modernists who just want this third person objective perspective. We don't want to be relativists. We don't want to be subjectivists. And so you kind of eliminate all the personal perspective. And then the postmoderns who are like, no, the, a master narrative is just that it's, it's all the negative connotations of being a master and forcing your way on me. And I, I think that what you're showing too, is that like Christianity uniquely, um, uniquely pulls from both and says, Hey, you're both onto something and critiques both and says, you're both missing this really important, mm-hmm. important facet. I see that in, in Nagel, uh, view from nowhere. And then, uh, the last word, I think, he's kind of challenging both modernists and postmodernists. Lewis does it with miracles. And, um, oh, shoot, he's got another, maybe it's mere Christianity, But, but Lewis does it as well of, of critiquing both who would eliminate the third or first person perspective. What, what, what do you make of that?
1: Well, I like how you set that up. It's, it's a kind of middle way argument. It's like, we don't want this over here, but we don't want this over here. Well, yeah. Christianity gives you this middle way. Yeah. I mean, it's just true that a lot of the celebration of narrative comes from the postmodern corner. Right. It comes with this kind of relativism, mm-hmm. which to me is anathema. Yeah. And they're, they're reacting to this hyper-objectivism, or they say at least. I mean, that's there in, I suppose, the positivists and so on. Yeah. Uh, this hyper-objectivism. And Christianity does give you a, a middle way. I mean, think about it. If Christianity is true, story is not an arbitrary imposition. Right. And it's not a... It's not a sort of subjective imposition. Story is is there at the deepest layer of reality. It's something mm. that pours out of a God upon whom all of the universe depends. Yeah. I mean, in Christianity, it's just generally true that the deepest layer of reality is subjective and is love. Mm. Right? Yeah. Right. God. <laughs> so... On the hyper objective, you know, scientific naturalist view, love is mm, this maybe epiphenomenon. I mean, not not all naturalists will want to do this, especially these days. But back in the day, a guy like T. H. Huxley or something want to, you know, say that love is just a bunch of chemicals, just a bunch of dopamine. That was my first experience of existential despair as a child was watching PBS and uh, some documentary on PBS said that love is just a chemical reaction in the brain. Oh wow, man, holy cow! And I remember being a child and feeling the despair of this view, but not being able to articulate it. That's my, my earliest memory of existential despair. Wow. So Christians, of course, think no love is actually the realest thing there is. It's more real than electrons and mountain ranges and laws of gravity and so on.
0: Yeah. I had a, a similar uh, existential crisis when we learned about uh, neutrinos coming off the mm. sun and passing through our bodies and the earth yeah. and everything. And I was like, I don't I don't like being this this webbed thing that things just passed through me. <laughs> and, uh, and then like coming to study the authorial analogy and such seeing that, look, physics tells us about the furniture of the story, but it, it doesn't tell us the, the actual narrative. Uh, mm. why is that furniture there? What's That's it, right. what's it's, what's its uh, purpose. And so it's like, it, it helped me to like physics again and say like, mm. it's cool to study electrons, and neutrinos. Okay. But we also need to know what they're there for and, yeah, and how do the, they fit.
1: Right. These are the props in the great story.
0: Yeah. And that's what you're talking about. The the, the facts need to be strung together in the right Mm -hmm. way.
1: Yeah. I think that's important. Once they are in the Christian narrative, we see that actually some of those items, the material of God's story becomes a lot more significant. I mean, the ruby slippers from The Wizard of Oz auctioned for $2 million. Whoa. Do you think a duplicate pair would auction for that? Only if you tricked somebody. Right. Okay, so things can gain prestige, dignity from the roles they play in great stories. Mm-hmm. And if electrons and gravitational fields and mountain ranges and rivers are are the material that God is using to tell his story, they too gain enormous prestige, far more than the ruby slippers. I mean, these would be the materials, the props. In which the, through which the great storyteller is telling the greatest story ever, mm. right? So that's yeah. one way in which God would infuse the world with value by the ways in which the world participates in the story he's telling.
0: Yeah, that's, that's so huge. So uh, I really, really like that. I, I always think about the base, like a baseball. I, I don't know, maybe um, Peterson and uh, Sam Harris were debating this or something, but, you know, uh, uh, Babe Ruth hits a baseball, uh, and it's whatever number home maybe it's his 50th home run or something now that one has even more meaning than his 49th or something right. but it just because of the action now that ball it has more value than just any ball you bought at mm-hmm. you know sports store or whatever and i was really tempted to go with information theory and in the authorial analogy because it's kind of cool and everyone's talking about information theory nowadays but i think meaning is even deeper and more important than information theory because if if information theory is true both those balls uh, have been, say, like, uh, similar or the same encoded information in them, mm. but they one was hit by Babe Ruth, one was not. Yeah. And so there's this meaning that you can't get from just the information that's encoded in it.
1: Yeah, that's right. Or, or you might say just its intrinsic properties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a profound kind of value that arises not from the intrinsic properties of the ball, but from the relations in which the ball finds itself caught. I think of that as the enchanted web. Mm. Those relations are a kind of enchanted web in which some artifacts find themselves caught. And if God exists, he bears an enormous, actually number of relations. I think he bears at least 11 to the world, to the created order that would infuse it with meaning and re-enchant the natural world. We, We are all caught in the enchanted web if the God of Abraham exists.
0: Dude, that's awesome. Have you, um, is this the, the 11, I forgot what you said, criteria, or what do you call them, 11? Relations God relations. bears to
1: the world that would infuse it with additional value. Indeed, that would re-enchant it for us if okay. we could only see the world in those terms.
0: So, like, yeah, these 11 re-enchanting relations. You got some alliteration there. That's uh, <laughs> Yeah.
1: Have,
0: is, that, is this part of your, is this your huge project? Is this your, your broad scope project, or have you written about the 11... Uh, um, before.
1: This is a book in the works that okay. is not done yet and not published anywhere. Dude, this is awesome. This is a, a, a Parker Pensy's premiere,
0: man. You're That's giving right. me the Let's inside go. scoop. I love that. <laughs> it's awesome. Um, okay, I wonder again about narrative realism if um, and, and, and value theory. Are, are some stories
1: inherently worth more than other stories? Doesn't that seem right to you? I mean, isn't that just exactly what we think when we look at the story of growth and development and compare it to the story of decline and dissipation? Mm-hmm. We want to say, well, that's the story I want. And that's the story, not just that I want, but if that I want for my children, that I want for anyone I care about. And even a stranger, if I'm comparing those two stories and two uh, strangers' lives, I can see that the one life is more worth having. Yeah.
0: So I, I think that's absolutely right. I wonder if... so. My dad's story is pretty awesome. He was he was adopted, one of ten children. They uh, my my grandparents were also um, uh, foster parents. So the one time, wow. fifteen kids. He, my dad would have to go to the the train uh, stop to use the bathroom because there's so many kids in the in his house. He's got this really cool story. He hitchhiked to California, then to Alaska. Um, became a, a believer. All these, you know, almost killed in the desert by some cowboys. Really, really awesome, fantastic story. He's a he's a novelist himself. He's written like seventy five short story or uh, novels, and then he writes a bunch of short stories. He's a carpet cleaner. He's crazy. This guy's nuts. I think his story is objectively awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, And even I can't say this because I'm his kid. But if I wasn't his kid, I'd like to think I'd still like it. Yet, um, Kim Kardashian's story uh, is more valued right now. Yeah, from from a social standing, I wonder is there a more intrinsic value in like a, a janitor's story, a carpet cleaner story, because of the progression and because it it it's they've grown more than like a, a celebrity who's famous for being famous. Sorry, Kim Kardashian, but
1: yeah, no offense. <laughs> yeah, incidentally, I once taught a Kardashian in one of my classes, but that's are you serious? serious that's story crazy for another time. Yeah, wow, was that in New York or? This was actually in the Bay Area, uh, and she was a good good kid, actually. Uh, wow. Uh, cousin or something like that. Crazy. Um, yeah, so that's right. I mean, I think we can get wrong what stories really matter. I mean, I guess what's going on there is the fan of Kim Kardashian is like, oh, I just love this celebrity, and so I love her story i suppose i'm not really sure what's really going on in the psychology of someone who watches the kardashians but yeah i'll i'll let the uh <laughs> psychologist solve that one yeah yeah uh so, but yeah i mean your dad's story sounds awesome and and one hears that and one says oh my gosh i want to live that story yeah. i want a story like that yeah and then you think that story involves a lot of risks mhm and a lot of pain yeah and that's actually what good stories are like there is no story without Suffering and conflict, and so we're torn between, on the one hand, wanting security and comfort and safety, but on the other hand, wanting the meaning that comes from a great story. And that's a basic tension in life: is the tension between basically meaning and and security. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure what the right balance is, but I, I know that it is a sad thing sometimes to watch people who are entering the middle class, rising through the middle class become so security obsessed that they don't they forget how to take the kinds of meaningful risks that create beautiful stories
0: yeah I love that and um I often use this with my wife um, when we're, we're we're struggling with with uh, infertility right now and so mm-hmm. um a lot of times she'll, she'll kind of jump to some conclusions and she doesn't mind me sharing this because we, we tell everyone this um, and people can pray for us, which would be huge. But um, I use the narrative a lot and say like, Hey, look, like we're, we're narratively situated. We're not Mm -hmm. in God's place to be able to say what he's going to do with this or not. And I, it, it ends up always encouraging me that I'm not the author of my own story in the sense of being the author of the meta narrative, because I wouldn't have put myself through the stuff that God has. But I'm so much better for it, you know. Like I, I tore my thumb uh, ligament wrestling. I wouldn't have done that because mm-hmm. let's let's give Parker a story where none of his ligaments break ever. Yeah. But then I wouldn't learn the lessons that I learned from it. I wouldn't have been able to overcome and uh, meet people through, you know, physical therapy, all the stuff, you know. So I'm so glad that he's in charge and I'm not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder what what um what role does that play? And maybe it doesn't. But like the self. Like the recognition that we your story fits in a in a grander story does that have you have you thought through the self reflective nature of like the someone understanding they're in a story?
1: Well, I think there's a couple layers there, one is that Christianity allows you to say, no matter what mistakes I make, there's a way that God can redeem them, yeah, yeah right. I will not take myself out of the game i mean being a when I was a younger young man, I would I definitely messed up in some ways that made me wonder: could I ever contribute to God's kingdom in a serious way? Yeah. Same. And it's so, so yeah, so reassuring to read the story of David and Bathsheba. Like, say, so, well, I didn't have anyone murdered, so I know I've done that too. But evidently, even if I had, God would have, have some way to gather up the frayed ends of my life story and weave them back into His tapestry. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge thing. So, if you're a secularist, you don't have that reassurance. I suppose you have more of a bracing sense of, it's all up to me. Yeah. Um, but I think the Christian can recover some of that bracing sense as well. I mean, you have very much a significant role to play in the living out of your life story as well. It's not like the Christian loses entirely the sense that you are authoring your story. Yeah. Um, so one layer of what you said is that the Christian has this, this person who is provident over her story, and the Christian can trust that that God will bring her story for good Mm -hmm. right and the other thing you mentioned is embedding your little story into a great cosmic narrative and of course I do think that that's extremely an extremely significant source of meaning depending on the cosmic narrative of course yeah right Thomas Nagel flirts with this uh, pretend religion where we're being raised up as like chickens for God to eat us or something like that. (laughs) I think that would be a cosmic narrative that maybe is not so not so good yeah. It doesn't feel so good to embed your life in that story. Yeah. But I think the Christian story is uh I mean, of course, that's something we could fight about if someone's worried about hell, for example. Right. But yeah. that's territory that would be certainly worth defending. Uh the Christian needs to be able to assert that embedding your story within the Christian story is a great good yeah. for us.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's that's really good, man. All is so good. Um, I wanted to you you give some reasons for uh, why you think a Christian should be committed to uh, narrativism. Um, but let's go over those really quick because uh, there's some more. Yeah, I just want to get into more and more and more. But um, you you yeah. call it your your uh you call this the commitment thesis.
1: Okay, great. Yeah. Um.
0: Yeah. Can you go over those? Mm-hmm. I think there's four of them, right?
1: Yeah. So now we're turning to this particular paper we've just. I would like the audience to know we've just been riffing right now. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. But um, but the paper is really uh follows an argument schema like this. Basically, there are Christian practices that are central to the Christian life and that require you to self-narrate. Hmm. And I think there's no less than four, I actually think there's five, but I just described four in this paper for space reasons. One of those practices is confession. I think confession is ultimately narrative. You're narrating some episode out of a sense of contrition, some episode you want to repent of. Mm. I think, um, well, somewhat people have – debunkers have objected that Christian confession was not narrative and habitual in this way until – Like the 5th or 6th century, Foucault says this, but actually there's evidence that it's much earlier, centuries earlier, evidence that Foucault doesn't cite. So I always love to uh, smack around Foucault whenever. (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, And second, uh, gratitude and thanksgiving. That's a kind of narrating. You're narrating uh, a good in your life as something given by God. Another one is uh, meditating on the afterlife. By doing this, by thinking about your heavenly future, which we're commanded to do. You are taking the present, and you're turning it into a story by giving it a narrative ending with maximal closure. And a final practice that requires self-narrating is the sharing of personal testimony. Yeah. Now, there are anthropologists like Tony Lurman who think this is a sort of recent thing that evangelicals are up to. It's like, here's my personal story of how Jesus is the lover of my soul.
0: Hmm.
1: Turns out, this has a deep history. I mean, St. Paul used his personal testimony yeah. to convert people and to edify the church, Justin Martyr used testimony to uh, reach uh, converts, and uh, the, the earliest autobiography we have in the West is uh, written by a couple, uh, by a, a pair of Christian women. Oh, really? Perpetua and Felicity in two hundred two. I always That's thought it was Augustine. Holy cow! Right. So Augustine's the first full blown mature autobiography. That's correct. Okay. okay. But there are glimmers of autobiography earlier than that, and the earliest Christian one we have is Perpetua and Felicity. Wow. Uh, Now, is that an accident? Well, actually, let's just continue this narrative. Then you get the first mature autobiography is is Augustine, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, But from there until the end of the 18th century, autobiography will be spiritual autobiography in which the Christian is narrating his or her spiritual development for the sake of edifying the church and reaching the unconvinced. Yeah. And that will continue through the Middle Ages. We have, we have many of the great autobiographies of the West are written like this. It won't be until Rousseau that we get used to the idea of an autobiography that's being told just to put the self on display hmm. rather than to convert or to edify the church. And actually, when Rousseau publishes autobiography, it was met with outrage. People hmm. thought it was vulgar self display. And it wasn't until the later decades later that people sort of got used to it after more and more sort of copycats came out of the Rousseau style autobiography. That reticence to put the self on display in an autobiography is actually uh, pretty common cross culturally. So there are autobiographical traditions in China, for example that have to manage this reticence. Uh, There's there's a medieval Chinese autobiographical tradition called the self-written epitaph, Mm. where the author will pretend he's dead and then write his own epitaph telling his story. Wow. And what he's doing there, he's managing the reticence of directly putting your story on display. So there's a sense that this would be sort of inappropriately self-aggrandizing. Yeah. And so you're going to sort of channel that channel that desire to write autobiographically into a medium that allows you to manage that reticence. Another way the Chinese did this is a historian would write the history of the empire, right? And then he'll append a little, little chapter at the end telling his life story, <laughs> as if to say, you know, this isn't the folks of the work. Yeah. So in many cultural contexts, there are autobiographical traditions that are limited by this reticence and that seek some kind of artifice to manage that sense of the inappropriateness of putting the self on display. So I think one of the reasons and I'm sort of just historical speculation here, one of the reasons that the West sees the first full-blooded autobiographical tradition is that Christianity gives you these decisive reasons to narrate the self, to narrate your life. They give you a reason to put it all on display. Search your soul, describe the subtle sins within your heart. Uh, You have this huge capacious self that you're going to put on display the ways that God is at work in your life for the sake of the church and for the sake of the unconvinced and so christianity licenses robust autobiography so that's particularly interesting because autobiography is the single great influence on the realistic novel uh which began the 18th century so uh this is a way in which christianity has really blessed civilization and i always like to put such blessings on display for those who want to say that you know religion poisons everything
0: yeah that that's so huge again, man. You you brought up so much stuff. I was laughing when you were talking about the uh, uh, pre- pretending that you're dead in order to write um, mm-hmm. yourself story because my my dad wrote his own eulogy, mm. and uh, I was like, "Pops, man, that's um, that seems kind of vain, dude. That's kind of weird. You want us to read mm. this?" And he's like, "Look, yeah. it's it's a story of of you know how I met my savior, and mm. and so it it actually is uh, it, within that the Christian tradition oh, of you're doing weird. it, for, yeah." And so I, I thought that was. That was he's fantastic. Doing what St.
1: Paul did, and he's yeah. giving you an inheritance,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? Sacred memory. Yeah. That's another practice. I don't mention the paper, but that's all throughout the Bible. Let's think of the stones of the Jordan. Build yeah. these stones, God tells the Israelites, and then when your children ask about them, tell them the story about how I saved you by helping you cross the Jordan. Yeah. The thought is like, the story of my work in your life is a story you need to steward and pass on to mm. the young. There's a shared narrative inheritance. Yeah. And I think it's very important for elders to realize that. Uh, elders who can be tight-lipped, you know. Hmm. Uh, certainly the World War II generation was like that. It's hard to get them to tell you anything about themselves. Right. But your kids, your young people need your story. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and, and
0: so much of... So much of wisdom comes from that, comes from someone else's, yeah. their own story. And mm-hmm. I've, I've gotten some trouble with some of my philosopher friends because I, I wanted to separate philosophy from the wisdom tradition just a little bit because it seems like it's, a, it's like an impious thing to say. You know, philosophy is not just, just the love of wisdom as it's uh, etymologically uh, cashed out. But that, yeah, there's there's more arguments involved. It's more arguing yourself closer to reality. And we're not sophists mm-hmm. or anything like that, sophists. But in wisdom tradition, a lot of it is just no mixed statements that you either get or you don't get. And hey, let the wise listen. And if you're wise, you'll hear my words kind of thing. But right. so much of that is played out in in someone telling you their story and you don't always just analyze it in propositional form and saying here's what i'm supposed to learn you just receive that story and it becomes part of you and you say i'm not going to make that mistake or i'm going to live in the same way that this person lived and so mm-hmm. yeah i sorry to if i if i sent you off there on uh, wisdom tradition and philosophy oh, that's stuff, great. But. yeah
1: yeah you're i mean our moral intuitions are elicited by the gory details mm and what better medium to recover the gory details than a narrative? That's why when an ethicist wants to elicit a moral intuition from you, he tells you a little story.
0: Always. Yeah. Right? Oh. That's so good. It's always
1: about burning babies or something. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, that's right. You, you round a corner and there are some hoodlums pouring gasoline on that <laughs> yeah. cat, like the trolley's out of control, you know, whatever it yeah. is. Yeah. Uh, we, we can fill in enough of the gaps to have a reaction to a story. I mean, our mm-hmm. emotions are sort of the taproot of our moral intuitions and other evaluative intuitions and our emotions, it's just well known, are elicited by concrete, vivid data. Mm-hmm. And, and narratives are in certain ways ideal for embedding that kind of data. Yeah. Um,
0: I'm, I'm like, I'm filled with compassion for those, just as we're talking, who think that their stories don't matter yeah uh, the, i'm I'm thinking of just some shy girl who who's like my my life sucks i've never experienced anything mm-hmm. i wonder would you say that would you tell this person that uh like their their story is sacred as well or if all stories are sacred you know that like this turn of phrase like if everything yeah. is this then nothing is this like right can 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 every story be sacred without diminishing
1: uh the sacredness of of each individual story yeah, that's a good that's a good question. So I'm very interested in the concept of the sacred mm-hmm. and how we recover. I think the concept of the sacred is very important in life, but that the secularist has a hard time explaining that concept and taking it seriously. Because the sacred seems to be like the meeting place between the common and the transcendent. Yeah, you know, It's where the transcendent breaks in. So there is a worry. Like the sacred is supposed to be set apart. So if we say everything's sacred, well... Right. It seems to undermine the the concept but I think you can say each person is precious mm. and his or her story is precious and it's a story that God is waiting to get involved in and so what do you say to that what do you say to that person how does Christianity help us talk to the person who thinks I've got no story what does my story matter well your story matters because you matter mm. right and why do you matter well we have a story about this too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So insert your favorite Christian story about where human value comes from. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so your story matters because you matter and your story matters because it's one where God is at work. It's, you know, that the, the grove of trees is sacred because it's haunted by the gods. Hmm. Well, your narrative is sacred because it's haunted by the God. Yeah. Right. So, and then I, I, I also like this picture of the afterlife where it's a place where all stories are told. So Thomas Merton has this prayer. I love to read the prayers of Thomas Merton. And he says, God, I need you to number the dead. And when I read that, I thought, actually numbering the dead would not be enough. I mm. need you to name the dead. Yeah. I need you to tell their stories, the lost people. I need you to tell their stories. I need them to be heard by all the saints in heaven, mm. heard and celebrated and for them to be stories of redemption. And so hopefully that teaching like that could uh, give a lot of courage to people who, are, who, are, who think their stories don't matter. But, but there's also a practical piece. It's like the shy person might be responsible for getting out there and starting to live a story yeah. in which they're taking the kinds of risks that give us meaningful narratives. And it, it, it probably wouldn't work to go out and say, I'm going to take some risks and maybe I'll set off some firecrackers. <laughs> yeah. it's rad, Jump in like, front of a car. Yeah, That's right. Try to, uh, it's like you're on this, in this world, you have something to offer this world. Mm-hmm. You're here to do something. Find out what that thing is, damn it, and go do it. Yeah, And, and, and th- that path will require you to take risks eventually, not for their own sakes, but for the sake of that thing that you're here to do. Yeah. And a huge part of discerning vocation in a young person's life is figuring out just what that is or what it might be. Yeah. And then you get out there and you will end up with a story, right? You maybe don't find a story by seeking it. You seek something else and you end up with a story, right?
0: Yeah. This is like, um, I'm I'm reminded of like uh, uh, Bilbo Baggins and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Gandalf had a... grab him out of there and set his foot on the, on the path. But once your feet are on the path, mm-hmm. there's no telling where your feet will lead you.
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I wonder, I have a, I have a bunch of competing Parkers in my head. Uh, maybe yeah. Daniel Dennett is excited about that. Um, yeah. But, uh, I have like the wrestler Parker. I, I grew up wrestling, mm-hmm. wrestled all, all throughout college. And that Parker is like, go out and conquer everything and uh, he's a real jerk anyways he's like yeah. you know it's not enough that i win others should should fail too somehow
1: like odd to me <laughs>
0: <laughs> there's then there's like the the parker who like wants to be like christ and that one's like mm-hmm. hey step out step out of your hobbit hole and um intersect as many as many other people's stories as possible in order um to bring in order to serve them and and bring more benefit to their lives uh, I don't think that the rest, like I, I couch the wrestling one in like a bad, in bad terms, but like there is something about personal accomplishment that makes things good. Is it, can a, I, I guess you can't really have a story that doesn't intersect, intersect with other, other stories, but mm-hmm. does intersecting with more stories in a positive way, does that make, is that, is that a value maker? Is that, is that a great making property for your story or yeah, what what do you make of that? Do we need to intersect with as many as we can?
1: Okay, there's a couple pieces there. Here's one piece. Uh, I want to qualify that I don't necessarily think we should go around saying, what story should I live today? Okay. It's not that you're consciously seeking a certain narrative as a goal. Maybe in, in really reflective moments you are. Okay. But the business of living is conducted more immediately. And by pursuing worthwhile things, you mm. end up with a worthwhile story Without, it's sort of like seeking happiness. like you know, The most miserable people are the people who go around trying to be happy. <laughs> we're, try, we're, we're trying to be your friends. Like, hey, Parker, want to be my friend? You know, <laughs> yeah. That's not how we make friends. We make friends by sharing some other thing, right. some common interests. Right? I think ending up with a great story is sort of like that. You don't seek it directly. You seek, okay. you seek things that matter, and it's a sort of second thing. It's a sort of byproduct of that. So is it good to intersect with other stories? Yeah. Because that's just to say it's good to matter to people. Mm-hmm. And the ways that you matter to them just will be describable in terms of great stories, right? Yeah. Ways that you, you showed up in their story, and that's going to be of value to your story. But it doesn't mean you're going out with that as your goal necessarily. Okay. okay. I mean, wouldn't it be kind of creepy if I was like, Parker? I want to help you because it would give me such a great story. You know? <laughs> I know. Yeah, that be sort of weird.
0: Well, uh, some, I mean, some of us do that, right? Like some yeah. of us volunteer at, at shelters
1: and, and things right.
0: like that for wrong reasons, and the rest of us right. are like, "Well, it's a good thing you did for the for a, a, kind of a gross motive."
1: Yeah, yeah, and I, I don't know if I would say it's a gross motive to want to to do something because of the story it would produce, but it seems to be sort of one too many thoughts or something like that
0: well yeah uh, i i guess i had in mind if you if you snap a, a selfie uh yeah. of you feeding a right. homeless person
1: yeah that's right yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah and the other piece that you mentioned is part you know wrestler parker is gross well i totally see that point i want to push to the desire behind the desire this is a move that a christian can always make yeah so wrestler parker wants achievement the question is why what does he want what's behind that desire yeah and the Christian can look at the desire behind the desire and exalt it and say there's some, actually a lot of dignity in what you want there. Mm. Why do you want – chi- well, I would say actually what you want is – I mean, you can say what you want, but maybe mm-hmm. what you want is glory. Well, Part of it, yeah. I believe you're destined for glory, <laughs> mm-hmm. to reign with Christ. It's just that we're at our worst when we're seeking that glory outside of that, outside of God's plan for glorifying yeah. Humanity, right? Yeah. So the desire behind the desire is something noble. We just want to redirect it. The Christian always has this redirecting strategy. Yeah. And what falls out of that redirecting strategy, redirecting our desires, is a way of integrating what may seem like unrelated stories of our lives. Mm-hmm. So you might look back at a life where you're like, I was so devoted to wrestling and that was so misguided. How is that connected to my life now? It seems like I'm living too disparate stories, but there's this desire to integrate one's life. I feel this desire very intensely yeah. to gather up the sort of lost bits of my past and, and, and feel a closeness to that past. That seems to be farther and farther away. Yeah. And that closeness is felt by understanding what the story is that unites right now with then and the future. And the Christians can say, what is that story for wrestler Parker is, um, there you were seeking glory outside of god's path to your glory and now here you are seeking it along the path that god has laid out for you yeah. and that's a way of understanding a narrative theme that binds those otherwise disparate episodes together i mean sorry to talk about your life so much i, I don't really know what, what the real story <laughs> no, of your life is it's great. but it's just an example
0: yeah yeah I, I really appreciate that i um i wonder so going back uh to narrative realism I don't want to. I don't want to push too hard on this because it's it's not part of the paper. But um, f- I want to. F- I think we want to find the story, the objectively real story that we're living in, right? Like, is, is that is that part of it, or do we look back from uh, later on in our story as we're old, and then we can recognize it? Like, can, is it something that I can discover now, or do I need the time to look back on?
1: Doesn't it seem like we get at most glimpses, yeah. glimpses of it. But that narrating is done. Narrating is done in a forward-looking way when we're trying to plan life. Yeah. But then your life will just happen regardless of what you planned. Yeah. <laughs> and then the real narrative is told backwards-looking. You know, Samuel mm-hmm. Johnson, the great prose stylist of the 18th century, also a pious Christian, let me tell you. Mm. Samuel Johnson says in one of his many essays that you know, one of the great joys, I'm paraphrasing, but one of the great joys of life is to look back in your old age... And survey your memories and be proud of what you've done yeah right um well that is a picture of what narrating really ends up being is past facing trying to tell the story after it has happened yeah uh because when you're when you're narrating from the present into the future that's more of projecting what your narrative might be along the lines of some goals that that you might have but of course life might have different ideas yeah (laughs) Yeah. but as you're facing the past and trying to understand that the story that you have already actually lived even then I think we're extremely limited and finite in our ability to not just remember the relevant facts but to configure them in the right kind of story thematically causally and so on
0: um yeah so I wonder also about, um, like the personal recognition of the good in your story. So I know, I know people, I've been this, this way myself where you don't like your story. Hmm. I don't like, and, and not, not because you're an Uber sinner. Like I can say that as well. And I can still like my story seeing God change me and not, uh, but some people have like really they have really great stories, and they're like, oh, "I I don't like my story. I don't like being mm. me." Yeah. Um, there's there's kind of like a uh, like an uh, adjustment that their pro attitudes need to go through, or something like mm. that. Yeah. Um, yeah. How do how do we do that if you if you don't like your story, like how how can you
1: how do you change that? Well, I suppose there's two versions of that. I mean, I should say there's this narrative. Therapy tradition mm. that's too relativistic for my like. Okay. Uh, for from my tastes, they encourage a kind of narrative anti-realism. They want their patients to combine and recombine the events into their lives in any and every possible narrative. I'm actually quoting here the Epstein oh. and White, the founders of narrative therapy. Okay. And I think that's um, that kind of anti-realism. I've already said I think is a mistake for a narrativist. But if we set that aside, I think we can recover we can recover a kind of narrative therapy that's freed from that anti-realism. And some philosopher has a paper arguing that. I I forget who who it was. Daniel something. Um, So let's try to get that narrative anti-realist bit out of it. The narrative therapist then has the work with this person who's struggling in the way he's described Mm. to help them either... I mean, maybe, is their story actually bad? That might be. If so, Mm. then what they need to do is... Start living a better story and think about how to do that. Yeah. Or is their story actually good? Like there's a lot of good material there for the right kind of narrative, and they just need to see, re narrate those events. Yeah. And I think, you know, narrative therapy could be helpful in either situation, but that's going to be the two possibilities there. You yeah. need to reconceive the narrative as the good story it actually is, or you need to actually start living a good story and face the fact that, yeah, it does suck, but you know what, you're in control of the rest of it. Yeah. Now, what do you do if you're at the end of your life and you've wasted your life? hmm What if you realize that, that at the end of your life, you know, I didn't take enough risks, I didn't do enough interesting things? I don't have the raw material out of which a good story can be crafted. hmm What can a Christian say about that?
0: Is, it, is, it, I don't, is this rhetorical or do you—
1: I was literally trying to provoke an answer
0: from you, Parker. Oh, okay. Well, um, I I wrestle with this um, because I think it depends on if they're a Christian or not, right? Um, Mm -hmm. I think of the parable of the talents. And it's like, look, if you genuinely wasted your life, um, I think that's possible. I think that maybe you have done a disservice to the God who created you. Yeah, I think maybe you've you've squandered the talents that he's entrusted you with, not just your money and not, but but like your time with your children and all the all whatever he's given you, he's given everyone has something from the Lord, and anything we have, we yeah. have because he's given to us. Mm-hmm. I think it is possible to do that. I think it's also, I don't know about fully redeeming that. I think you know re- redemption and and salvation aside, redeeming that 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 part of the story that's wasted you you might be able to do that through sharing that with people. You're on your deathbed, you bring someone in, hey, don't be like me, you know, yeah. freak them out in that way. Or, you know, hey, I have all of eternity. And yeah, maybe my um, rewards in heaven, I haven't laid up uh, as many um, because I did genuinely squander the, the uh, talents that I've been given. Mm-hmm. But I have the rest of eternity to continue on in this story. And yeah. it's not over. It, we're not closing the book here. Yeah. I don't know.
1: Well, you mentioned heaven. I mean, C.S. Lewis has somewhere he remarks that this life is the first page in the, in the novel or something like yeah. that. Well, what if we take that idea really seriously and think that heaven is ultimately has a kind of narrative structure right. so, that, so that you're going to continue your story? This is just the first page of your story. You'll continue it into the afterlife for eternity. Now, that might sound like nonsense because narratives have to have shape. Mm. And if they go on forever, you might wonder, well, what's the shape of this story? I mean, think about a story that's just rising action, you know, and it just keeps <laughs> rising and rising yeah. Todd May is a skeptic of the good of immortality for this very reason. He thinks life that is immortal would be too shapeless
0: yeah there's this is going around a lot in yeah, uh, in right. in in popular philosophy mm-hmm. type stuff, uh, the yes. good place and such, yeah,
1: yeah. Bernard Williams has his famous paper, you know the Macropolis case, Reflections on the Tedium of immortality. And um, so a major threat of all this is that a life that goes on forever would lack the right kind of shape, form, or structure to be meaningful. And I think they're tapping into a good thought, which is that, and they don't put it like this, but I would put it like this. A meaningful life needs to have a narrative structure, but you might reasonably wonder how an eternal life could have a narrative structure, because narratives have to come to an end to be the narrative they are. Yeah. Okay. So how do we solve that problem? The Christian must solve this problem because if they're right, then actually Christianity would be false because we view eternal life as a good, mm-hmm. right? So we have to defend that territory. Well, here's an option. Here's a move you could make, at least. I mentioned earlier that any event could play more than one role in different narratives, right? Mm-hmm. So here you are with eternal life and you live one story in heaven and you, an event closes that story. But opens another. Ah, right. So it's one story after another, and yeah. multiple and events can be playing different roles in these different progressing mm. narratives. So you have a sort of cycle of of narratives with perhaps enough thematic continuity to yeah. um, make them coherently yours. All of these mm-hmm. stories. So that would be one way of trying to handle that problem, and that also gives us something really hopeful to say to the person at the end of his life feeling that he's squandered uh, the great deposit of his creator. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is that you have eternity to, to tell a different story, yeah. and that we can trust that in eternity, God will guide us towards the right kind of story. Mm. Um, I love Tolkien's vision of the afterlife in his short story, Leaf by Niggle. Mm. In this short story, Niggle is an artist who struggles all his life to paint the perfect painting but he never quite gets to it It's never quite what he wants and then he dies and he goes to heaven and there not only is his painting perfected but it's become real the tree he was trying to paint has become a real tree and a glorified version of the tree he was attempting Hmm. to complete and he's actually living in the painting and he enters the heavenly realm through that scene that he had painted So that's the first piece is this completion of what we've begun here right and the next piece is that he journeys into heaven heaven is a kind of depth that has to be journeyed into you can find this thought in the church fathers i think origen gregory of nyssa have thoughts like this that heaven is a sort of perpetual journey into the depths of god and perhaps and what i'm suggesting is that well, journeys can be narrated and maybe that segments of that journey have enough distinctive narrative structure that we can avoid these worries about the shapelessness of an eternal life, yeah, and that also gives the person who's filled with regret on his deathbed some way of managing those regrets, yeah apart from the simple thought that now his life is over
0: yeah <clears throat> man that's good that's really like that 's really edifying this is awesome i I'm reminded of Well, in in American evangelicalism, growing up, it was like, uh, you know, we're going to go to heaven and we'll be disembodied souls forever. And uh, we'll know everything instantly and and, and all that. And uh, the more I've thought about that, I'm like, well, you know, i read the Bible and we're going to be in a new heavens, new earth. Seems like we're going to have new bodies and we're going to be able to do work here on this new glorified earth. Yeah. And then further, like... Now we know through a, a glass darkly. Um, but then we'll know in full, and it, but it doesn't say immediately. And so, yeah. if if that were the case, it'd be like a philosopher's nightmare. Of
1: mm-hmm.
0: hey, you yeah. know all that thinking that you love doing? No more. Yeah. Here's all the answers, dude. Mike, you, you're you're done. Like that would be a, a nightmare. But God made philosophers, mm-hmm. and uh, we need to to keep thinking. So, I really like what what you've thought. Um, what, what you said about the the completion of of new. Um, I'm thinking in like video game terminology and stuff. I don't know why, but like, yeah, new missions or whatever. Like yeah, yeah, that's right. You get to new checkpoints. <laughs> um, I, I really like that. I think that's really helpful. Um, yeah, I I got a couple like random thoughts that I wanted to swing pa- past you. Is, that, is it? okay? Let's do it. okay. So, um, do you? This is something I I wrestled with in my my thesis. And I didn't know what to really say. I think I might now, but do you think that there's a... So we live in this meta-narrative or master-narrative. Is this the best possible narrative or is this a good narrative that he chose out of a list of good narratives? It's it's uh, inheriting the same problem of like, you know, best possible world type stuff.
1: Yeah, I guess I want to know if this is in any way really different than that, than the problem of whether God must create the best. Yeah. What does What does framing that question in narrative terms add to that issue is would be my question. My instinct is no, I don't see why he would have to create the best, just a good, maybe perhaps a good world above a certain threshold of goodness. Yeah. I haven't thought too much about this, but that would be my first reaction is just what does the narrative framing of this issue add to the issue? Do you think it does add something? I think that framing,
0: uh, I think it's downstream from other issues like um, why is there evil in the world on a narrative approach? Well, there, yeah. a narrative approach can bring together a lot of different theodicies and defenses because we're in this story. Well, why is there evil? Why is there this and that? Because if you were to step back and see the whole tapestry or see the whole story, mm-hmm. you'd go, oh wow, okay, I see it from, from God's eye perspective. But you know, yeah, you see. get skeptical theism here because you get to say, hey, I'm narratively situated. I'm not right. I can't see from God's perspective. But then you go, okay, so it was it was good. It's a good that God allowed sin, um, and evil because now you have incarnation, you got uh, you know, the Felix Culpa of, of planning a, um, but then you go, well, couldn't, could God have done that without evil? And it's like, well, this is the story he was, he, he wanted to tell, well, why do you want mm-hmm. to tell the story? Well, because it's the best possible story, or this is a, you know, this one was better than a story that just had good without, um, vanquishing evil and without incarnating and God showing his justice and mercy mm-hmm. against this backdrop of sin and evil.
1: Okay, so these are profound issues. I, I would want to disentangle Parker. The really powerful piece of what you said is the thought that this narrative way of understanding reality equips you with an interesting kind of theodicy. Yeah. Let's set that thought to one side. That's a powerful thought. That thought does not require you to say it's the best possible story. Yeah. It just requires you to say it's a sufficiently good story. Yeah. So the, I think the most interesting piece here is just whether a narrative theodicy of any kind can work. And mm-hmm. and and if, I mentioned earlier, you know, that suffering is requ- is a requirement of any story, conflict and suffering. And the most interesting stories are the ones where the protagonist is dragged through hell. Yeah. Right. Uh, they say if you want to write a good short story, just keep making bad stuff happen to your character. That's father, what my, you know?
0: my my dad told us this all the time. We 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 always watched. Uh, we loved Jackie Chan movies, and mm. he's just like, just so you know, Jackie Chan's got to get beat up first. He's going to get yes. trounced, and then he'll come back, and then right. yeah, yeah, right. It'd be a much
1: more weak sauce sort of story if if not.
0: And that was the so, problem with Superman for for before yes. they had Kryptonite and stuff right. like that. Like, well, this right. isn't fun anymore.
1: It's always got to be like, oh no, what's going to happen to Lois? Yeah, That's right. The only way he's vulnerable is through the, through his loves, mm-hmm. and so that presents a problem to that to, to the storyteller behind Superman. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that might give you the materials for an interesting theodicy that maybe what God is doing is telling a kind of story Mm -hmm. for which suffering is necessary. I think Chesterton flirts with a theodicy like this in The Man Who Was Thursday. Mm. Um, But I haven't read that in a while, so I welcome correction, commenters. So I have not explored this very seriously, but I think you're absolutely right. That's fertile ground. And I suppose the initial objection would be like, Well, that sounds like you're using people, using their misery. I mean, we're talking about holocausts and rapes and enslavements so that there can be a nice story.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, maybe it can't handle those cases, but a theodicy doesn't need to handle every single case of evil. Mm -hmm. It'd be interesting if it could just handle some cases of evil, and it'd be interesting to know which cases those were. And incidentally this has behind it the conviction that most of us feel that we'd be willing to trade a lot of happiness for the right kind of story. Yeah. Think again of those mirror imaged lives. Suppose you're looking not at goods but at but at happiness and comfort and pleasure. Yeah. Well which life would you rather live? A one that starts with a lot of pleasure and declines, or one that starts with less pleasure, perhaps even suffering and, and rises? Well I think clearly we still prefer that second one, the one of increasing pleasure. And I think that we would actually trade a lot of pleasure mm. to get our life narrative moving in the right direction. Yeah. We would choose a life with much less pleasure, but where the narrative is, is meaningful. Mm-hmm. And of course, we could bring in the experience machine. I mean, I think what the experience machine illustrates is just that we would rather sacrifice a lot of pleasure to be in touch with reality uh, because that is much more meaningful Uh, if that's generally the trade-off i mean i mentioned that earlier there's this trade-off between security and meaningfulness and most Mm. of us think the right answer is to trade some amount of security for meaningfulness and probably a lot of security for meaningfulness yeah and so there are some value intuitions on the side of this theodicy
0: yeah that so uh, when you read my thesis, you'll you'll see uh, if you if you get a chance, no pressure at all. But but yeah, I I um I try to develop that uh, a, a few different uh, problems of evil, specifically for an authorial analogy, like the like I think I call it authorial logaria. Like why did so it's the, oh. the the problem of the amount of evil. Yeah. Why couldn't he have done it with with less? Yeah. Uh, evil in the story and uh, the absentee author is like uh, authorial you know authorial neglect and uh, hiddenness. Uh-huh. Um, and, yes. and so, yeah, I try to wrestle with those, uh, on behalf of, of Dr. Van Hooser. So,
1: yeah.
0: uh, yeah, man, if you get a chance, that'd be fun to, to get your thoughts
1: on that. But, well, um, what, what do you come away with? Can I turn the tables on you here? I mean, yeah,
0: it's, 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 it's a lot of, um, it's a lot of skeptical theism of saying, uh, using some of Van Hooser's tools. He, he calls it outsideness that the author is outside the mm-hmm. text. And in our case, in the story of reality, God is also the main character inside the text. Yeah. And so he, um, you can use a lot of theodicies like uh, character building. Um, mm-hmm. it's not, that's not what it's called in theological, or in uh, philosophy, religion, terminology. Uh, soul building. Soul yeah. building right. and, and soul character making, development. Yeah, yeah soul making. Yeah. Um, so you can use that. Um, I, I think it's actually, they all kind of come together, in a, uh, as uh, William and Craig says about the atonement, in a multifaceted gem. Yes, uh yeah, which no. which uh yeah. the face of it is the greater good theodicy right um and i know a lot of people are going to be upset by that i think i think any any defense is going to be a greater good defense even like maybe you'll disagree with this but like a free will defense is still a greater good defense cuz it's still a greater good that god would give us libertarian free will than not
1: that's right it will you will inevitably have to point to some compensating good for which yeah. evil is in some sense required even if not as a means yeah but as a possible byproduct or something right like
0: that. And I try to avoid um, like a consequentialist ethic. Though uh, right. I, I wrote this under Van Hooser and um, Dr. Feinberg, and um, Feinberg does not think that he thinks greater good defenses make you a consequentialist. And I'm like, I, I don't, I don't know, yeah. I don't think so. But right. yeah, so so ultimately, um, it's a it's a. Uh, there's so much st- stupid language I use, but it's like a Christocentric greater good theodicy that like the yeah. it's a good story, and um, it's. It's not necessarily the best possible story because I think you could always add one more umbrella or you know whatever. The... Yeah,
1: one one fewer mosquito.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, but it's it's a good story because you have uh, a greater display of who God is, uh, of His attributes, uh, um, his, that He's a merciful, just God, which you wouldn't get uh, you wouldn't get otherwise. And then, well, why why the amount of you? Well, look, I I'm not in a position to be able to tell you that. I don't have outsideness. I'm not. Uh, outside the text to tell you that but we do have a example of uh we, we we do have a justification for using this kind of defense because we can look to the cross so in there we mm-hmm. see the worst possible evil maybe not the worst po- the worst evil that we know uh brought about the the greatest good that we know and so you know the god man the only one who is sinless butchered on a cross brought about salvation for anyone who trusts in him mm-hmm. so it's it's that kind of a uh approach
1: yeah, that's interesting. So, yeah, well, it will be really interesting to, to see this narrative the Odyssey defended. I mean, I know Eleanor Stump has this book, Wandering in Darkness, that mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I have not read closely. So um, this probably, I'm curious if she covers any of this territory. Yeah, I, I forgot. Uh, I listened
0: to her. She did a, a colloquium at TEDS. Um, but it was on zoom and it was really hard for me it was like in like early covid days and i right. i was lifting while i was watching it so yeah.
1: I, <laughs> no one was paying attention to anything back like
0: then that. <laughs> that's right that's yeah, right. yeah. I, I know i do know that there's there's some uh christian philosophers lately who want to defend um uh, gratuitous evil and i think gratuitous evil and are saying like hey look god could have god could allow for gratuitous evil and uh, i I think that might kind of destroy uh the the narrative plot theme Mm. because i think if there's not a reason for him to allow it in the story then it does the whole story does kind of fall apart though maybe you could stretch it further and say yeah whatever there's some loose ends or something like that i'm not sure
1: well we should relativize the theodicy to those evils we think that it Explains. Yeah. Right? So maybe it doesn't help us with every evil, but as long as it helps us with some, it's worth talking about.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. A a powerful thought here that has to be mentioned is just the thought that we ourselves want to live great stories. Mm -hmm. So by using evil to give us a world in which those stories are possible, it's not like God is imposing upon us something totally alien to our desires. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you're, you're right there. And there, there is, mm, it's tough because I don't want to like misspeak and get out over my skis. I really don't want to do that. But yeah, yeah, there is this sense of Jackie Chan's got to get beat up first, you know, like there, there is that component in a good story. And so if we do live in a good story, that needs to be in there.
1: Yeah, Parker, let me just supplement what you've said, because there's going to be the person who says, Oh my gosh, well, what about the person who suffers like serious trauma? And as a matter of fact, those evils appear to be included in mm. what we're talking about, at least some of them. Maybe mm. not all of them don't need that claim. Uh, there's serious psychological research on what's called post-traumatic growth. It's a book by James Pennebaker, hmm. psychologist. It's called um, – oh, I forget the name of it. It's from the 90s or the 80s or something. Uh, and in this book, basically, he does a series of studies about post-traumatic growth. What is it, Why is it that some people who suffer traumas – experience an enormous hurdle of personal growth afterwards and other people's don't they, they just get stuck well what he finds is that the difference has to do with whether they are able to tell a story that makes sense of the trauma yeah. into a narrative uh of their own personal progression yeah okay and it has to be a story so he'll sit people down and he'll have them journal and code their results he'll have them journal about their uh, their their trauma, and you'll have other people just write about random stuff. Mm-hmm. And it has to be journaling. It has to be narrating your trauma in a sense-making way for the first time. Those are the people who experience the post-traumatic growth. He's even uh-huh. had people like do a dance or paint some other artistic medium that's non-narrative, non-sense-making. has mm-hmm. to be sense-making. It's not just about expressing your feelings. It's about making sense of the story. And that includes people who've had their arms blown off. Yeah. You know, people who have suffered enormous, the kinds of pains that will make people indignant that we're talking about this. Yeah, um, What redeems their suffering for them uh, is just their ability to make narrative sense of it. And then they say things like this. I actually wouldn't trade that suffering for the world. Right. right. They're on record saying this kind of stuff. They mm-hmm. themselves prefer that this happened that because this is now a part of their story. And they, yeah. they have redeemed it by making narrative sense of it. What I want to say as a Christian is that Christianity gives you powerful resources for that sense-making project that we all have to be involved in.
0: Yeah, man, that's so good. I, I'm glad. I'm glad you said that because um, you said it better than I would have. Um, but I, yeah, I love that, man. I think that's fantastic. Whew. Um, I wanted to. No. No, that was good, man. That's like a good... I I don't want to... That was so good. I don't want to ruin it. So, um, one last thing. uh, um, I want to get your opinion on this. So, you said uh, we should... In moments... Except for in moments of uh, self-reflection, we kind of just go out and live our lives and then we look back on the story. Mm -hmm. Um, I wonder... Uh, Marcus Aurelius has this like weird maybe not weird he's got a cool chant type thing uh mantra where he says like you know begin each day by telling yourself today I uh, shall be meeting with uh people of ingratitude and and all this yeah, stuff and right. so he's kind of he's kind of like helping himself and uh Dr. Van Hooser Kevin Van Hooser um super influential in my my theological thought obsessed obsessed with theodrama that yeah. we live in this in this and it's really good but one time in class, he, he started going over the thing. He's like, hey, in the morning I wake up and I think I'm in a story. You know, what, what yeah. character, what's my role that I'm playing? And it was really, it reminded me so much of Marcus Aurelius there. And yeah. So I've been trying to do that with myself a little bit here and there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wish I would do it more often in the morning and saying like, look, you're, you're a character in the story. You're not the main character of reality. So let's not get it twisted. Let's not get too inflated uh, or anything like that. But let's also recognize that like you have a, a part to play in God's story. And that's a really big deal that's really cool yeah do you should I do that is that something that we should do and 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 don't worry you know about offending van Hooser if you say no or anything like that but like is that something that we sh- we can actively take a role in or should we just say like yeah we're gonna live by Christian principles all that stuff and then we'll we'll look back but but don't worry about playing a part uh, in mm-hmm. the story
1: I think there's room for reflective moments in which we're more story conscious than other moments okay it's just that there's a legitimate concern that you'll become so reflective on your story that you're hardly really living it. And mm-hmm. I'm sure Van Hooser would acknowledge that there's such a thing as taking that story consciousness too far. Um, but that doesn't mean there's not moments to reflect on the story like Pennebaker's subjects do when they make sense of their traumas, for example. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm an avid journaler. The, the, the moment I became a Christian, I started journaling, actually. I yeah, me too. That, yeah, is that right? Yeah. Journaling is one of the most life-affirming Things you could do because you're saying the story matters. I'm going to tell it. Mm-hmm. And once I became a Christian, I just f- had the vivid sense that that my story does matter. Just yeah. time to start telling it, at least to myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's see. You were wondering if there's too much narrative consciousness, and you mentioned Marcus Aurelius. It's interesting that you mentioned him because the uh, Georg Misch wrote this two-volume history of autobiography in the early 20th century. He was a guilty yeah. student, actually, and. He thinks, you know, Christianity has this major role in the emergence of autobiography, but it's in certain ways prefigured by Stoicism. Okay. Because Stoicism shares these elements with Christianity of intense soul-searching and management of, your interior, of a rich interior life that needs to be searched, understood, and ultimately narrated. Yeah. So some of these elements are present in Stoicism, and that's a great passage you mentioned there where... Marcus Aurelius says, you know, today I'm going to meet a bunch of jerks, don't be surprised. Yeah. What he's doing there is he's narrating a future, and he's accepting that future in advance so that it doesn't startle him once, once he gets there.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so no, I don't think that's too much narrative consciousness, and as a matter of fact, I think those aspects of Stoicism are pretty congenial to Christianity, and I'm not the first to, to notice that. This Renaissance philosopher justus loops who wrote a hmm. book that's basically a christian stoicism um so wow. anyways i think it's not an accident that you're mentioning marcus Aurelius to make this point
0: okay wow man you're a, a wealth of information this is fantastic dude like we're we, we we're able to go everywhere with you i i really uh have been, uh, appreciated this this has been like good for my soul man um not not all of that some of them are just so um up there that i'm barely hanging on This has been super deep and rich. Seriously, thanks so much for coming on and sharing your work with me and and for going down rabbit trails.
1: Yeah, let's go rabbit trails all day long. Thanks, Parker. You know, it's great to talk and to to dig in. I I do like to do philosophy in a way that is rigorous, as rigorous as I can, at least. But also that is like speaking to the heart. And I think we can just we can do both of those things. At least I want to work on issues that allow us to do both of those things. So, yeah, thank you for uh, being down
0: yeah man um okay so you have to come back on like please like we got to do this more often Uh, this has been fantastic in the meantime uh my listeners i'm sure are going to be just uh champing at the bit chomping at the bit i think it's champing uh we're champing or chomping on the bit um i think it's chomping where where can they find more of your stuff in the meantime
1: yeah so i have a website that uh, has some short essays kind of aimed at my students but I guess anyone, called faithconsidered dot com. FaithConsidered. Okay. And you'll find some short essays there. Anything from the concepts like valid and sound to why Christianity enhances the meaningfulness of life. Just short thousand word, five minute reads. Awesome. So you can find audio essays and so on on that website. But I also have my academic website, Brian Scott Ballard.com, where you can just download my published work directly.
0: Okay. Okay. I will, I'll, uh, I'll leave those in the link in the description awesome. so people can find those easily. Thanks, Parker. Dude, this has been fantastic. Uh, yeah. Thanks so much again. And uh, please, you, ha- you have to come back. We've got to talk more.
1: Yes. And thank you, Parker, for your um, searching questions and for helping philosophers connect their work to a bigger audience. That is an enormous service. Yeah, so they really that. owe you one for doing that
0: I love that well folks uh, that's gonna have to do it for now um, this has been awesome it's gonna happen again so so be on the lookout but for now that's it this has been Parker's Pensies. and as always all glory to